You are listening to Meet the Thriller Author, the podcast where I interview writers of mysteries, thrillers, and suspense books. I am your host, Alan Peterson, and this is episode number 162. In this episode of the podcast, we'll be meeting Terry Roberts, who is a lifelong teacher and educational reformer and award-winning novelist. He is a native of the mountains of Western North Carolina. His ancestors include six generations of mountain farmers, as well as bootleggers and preachers who appear in his novels. His latest book, My Mistress' Eyes Are Raven Black, was published on July 27th. But before we get to that interview, a quick PSA to please rate and review this podcast on your favorite podcasting app, or head on over to thrillingreads.com forward slash links to find the links on that page. If you're a writer, you might be interested in checking out thrillingreads.com forward slash tools. I list the uh, four uh, software programs that I find indispensable. It's the uh, tools that I use to uh, outline, write, edit, and format my books. Uh, so you can check them out at uh, thrillingweeds.com forward slash tools. All right, here is my interview with uh, Terry Roberts. Uh, hi, everybody. This is Alan with Meet the Thriller Author. And on the podcast today, I have uh, Terry Roberts. He's a native of the mountains of uh, Western North Carolina. His uh, ancestors include six generations of mountain farmers, as well as bootleggers and preachers. We're going to be talking about that, <laughs> who appear in his novels. Uh, his latest book, My Mistress's uh, Eyes Are Raven Black, will be published on July 27th. I'm excited to talk with uh, Terry. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Alan. It's a thrill to be here. I can't wait to to have this conversation. I'm a big fan of the podcast, and uh, you know, it's it's an honor and a pleasure just to be with you this afternoon. So oh, I look great. forward well, to our conversation. Yeah, uh, awesome. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much uh, for coming on, and uh, I really appreciate it. So let's first get started with a little bit of your background. Can you give us a little bit about the uh, about your background? Sure. I was born and raised in the mountains of Western North Carolina. And as you said, it's quite true. I descend directly from six generations of mountain farmers, one straight line named Roberts going all the way back to at least 1800 and perhaps before. I was uh, raised in part by my grandmother, Grandma uh, Roberts. I called her Belva Anderson Roberts. And the reason I bring her up is she was born in 1888. And so you pause to think about that span of years. And one of the reasons I think I tell a lot of stories about the Southern Appalachian Mountains, in this case, Mr. Size is set in New York City on Ellis Island. But even so, there's a direct contact in my life back through the generations to uh, decade after decade after decade of what I think of as fascinating stories. And so it's a pleasure in a way to be able to be the medium for those stories, if you will, and to bring them into the present moment. Did you always want to become a writer uh, before you started to write your own novels? Is that always in the back of your mind? Well, it's interesting. I'm, I'm the classic English major, right? I loved books from an early age. I was a lit major in college. I had eventually got a PhD in American literature. In my 20s, I thought I would write the great American novel, but then how many of us thought that, right? <laughs> yeah. In other words, and I, I wrote some really dreadful prose. And then as time unfurled and I became a teacher and a classroom teacher and then eventually became involved in an educational nonprofit, decades passed until I was in my mid-40s, not living at home in the mountains, 
I began to write a story uh, set in 1917, it's my first novel. And I really began writing it almost more so for my children or my grandchildren than I did thinking it would be published. I had enough experience with literature to know how hard it is to break into the ranks of published authorship. And slowly over time, it occurred to me that this story was pretty darn good. You know, it might have legs, so to speak, a beginning, middle and end. And and so I began to think more ambitiously about it. Uh, And it was published um, in, in 2013 a short time to stay here, when I was 55 years old. And so there was, I always had that ambition, but it lay dormant for many years and until it rose back up again. Yeah, isn't that funny? It's always, no matter how long it takes, it's a, it, once you get that, that, that you want to write a book, it kind of like never goes away. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. um, so you, can you tell us then about your latest book? Um, just a little bit about what it's about. What's the plot? Um, especially since it's so close to your, uh, to your background, your pers- personal background, kind of curious how you, mem- how you mended those, uh, blended those two worlds together. This book is a departure for me. My first three novels were set in Western North Carolina. This novel is set on Ellis Island in the middle of New York Harbor in 1920, the summer of 1920. Uh, However, it is narrated by Stephen Robbins, uh, a character who appears in a short time to stay here. And Stephen is a mountain boy. He's a displaced uh, product of the Southern Appalachian Mountains who is in New York City. He's, He's followed a woman to New York City. And uh, he has this reputation as a finder, not an out-and-out private detective, but someone who finds missing persons or finds missing objects. And so he's, he's contracted, if you will, by a mysterious man from the Bureau of Investigation, the forerunner of the FBI, to go to Ellis Island to find a young Irish immigrant woman who is missing. And as things unfold, what he discovers is that there are a number of people who are either dying mysteriously or who have gone missing. And they all have in common, many of them are women. In fact, almost all of them are women. And what they have in common is that they are among those who are not favored by the current outlook in America, which is uh, characterized by eugenics quite strongly, and and what we would think of as racism. Uh, And it turns out that what he really has to deal with is a a group of murderers, killers, who are devoted to protecting the racial purity, the Nordic purity of the American population, which you and I both know is the myth. It never existed. But in 1920, as well as in 2020, the idea that somehow we we needed to protect ourselves from those who would come from far away and replace us in America uh, was very prevalent. And in fact, the 1920s were really the the high watermark of the idea of eugenics before, before, of course, World War II, which, which tragically brought that idea into the forefront of world history. And so... Stephen and a woman he meets and falls in love with, Lucy Paul, become partners in trying to solve this this mystery that's blown up around them uh, once he's on the island. 
Yeah, I love the setting too. The Ellis Island, so much history there. And like you said too, the parallels of what happened 100 years ago to what's happening now or what's been happening, unfortunately, for the last uh, couple of years. It's, uh, it's like um, history is repeating itself sort of. Um, it, we, when you started writing this, did all this, because I'm assuming, you know, it takes us a while to write these books. <laughs> so like all this was happening in real life while you were writing this? Or was it out already? What was your thoughts about that? Yeah, it was, it's been strange, actually, Alan. I got the idea for this book well before the 2016 election, when all of a sudden immigration as a hot-button issue came to the forefront of American society. Uh, it became highly politicized. It became, you know, the, the, I don't know, the headliner on all kinds of cable news programs, front page of the newspaper, et cetera. And in a strange kind of way, it was a little eerie because I had started writing the book about this idea using Ellis Island as the setting for obvious reasons about this idea of xenophobia. Why is it we are so susceptible, so vulnerable to hating and fearing the other? And that idea that we would hate and fear somebody who who's hit hair is different, the shape of their face is different, the color of their eyes is different, that's the title of the book, let alone the color of their skin, which is, a, you know, of course, quite dramatic example, that that's almost hardwired into who we are as human beings. That's really what this book is about. It's, it's about an exploration of this weakness that we seem to have as a species. And so what was strange is that public events in a weird kind of way, came to almost mirror the events in the novel. And as the years went past, uh, that became even more the case. And so I can't claim to have predicted it. And I'm, if, and I'm sad that the novel was sort of a precursor of what came later. And you're right. It takes a number of years to write one of these. And then during COVID, of course, the whole publication process slowed way down because we didn't know what was going to happen with bookstores, what was going to happen with print media. Um, so, yeah, this novel was a long time coming and its birth was its conception, at least, was well before the current political debate. Yeah, that's a, I, I find it so fascinating, too, and uh, of bringing such a, a big topics, but you're 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 putting it around an, a, a, a fun mystery. Is that like a balance that you want? You want the facts, you want the history. There's some heavy subjects to explore, but you need to entertain all as well. What's, what's that balance? What, what kind of balancing act is that? Yeah, from the get-go, I felt like that was the balance. I knew I wanted to write about this difficult topic and in some ways, you know, this quite disturbing topic. And the deeper you go with it, the more disturbing it is. There's a sense in which we have met the enemy and they are us, you know, when you really dig down into this whole business of xenophobia, of our, of our distrust of the other. And so I realized that I needed a genre, a um, procedure whereby people, the reader, would be drawn into the book and, and that interest would be maintained and accelerated as the book unfolded. And so, of course, the classic hard-boiled detective thriller um, felt to me like the, the way to go. I have to say this is personal. My father was a was a great fan of detective fiction, the hard-boiled thriller, as we like to call it. 
and so I grew up watching him read these things religiously. And while I was working on my mistress eyes of Raven Black, I, I consumed a steady diet of the classics going all the way back to Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler and Ross McDonald. Um, in a way, because I wanted to capture that mood and that tone and that language. And I hope that that has come through. A number of people have, have told me, uh, who, who I like to think of as very discriminating readers, they've said, you know, I sat down uh, thinking I'd give your book some time in manuscript, and I read it in two sittings. And I think that's a compliment, right? In other words, it, 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 it's that classic thing, a page turner. Uh, which for me is exciting. And you said it, Alan, beautifully. If it is that, then it draws you in and gets you, I hope, thinking about these larger issues. Um, somebody said to me the other day, I'm still thinking about what the book is about long after I know who the killer is. And, and that, of course, was, was my hope. Yeah, uh, can't can't be a bigger compliment than that, you know. Because yeah, usually when you read a thriller, you, when you're done, you're done. But if it if it makes you think afterwards, that's that's a pretty uh, pretty nice uh, sweet spot to be in. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I'm wondering as well too now with all the the big historical component part of that's in this book, um, like what was your research process like? Uh, how long did it take? And how can you walk us through that? Sure. Yeah. No, I'm a. And all of my books are set in the past. The most recent one, in fact, is set in 1928. I don't know why. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not as interested in contemporary society in many ways as I am interested in the past. And so there is a fair amount of research that's involved. Uh, I'm addicted to photographic research, for one thing. I like to see photographs of the setting and of some of the characters who are involved. Uh, and Augustus um, Stevens' photographs play a big role in this book. As, as, they're discussed throughout. So I did a lot of research about Ellis Island and about the 1920s and about eugenics in the 1920s. But for me, there's a certain point at which it's time to lay that down and begin writing. It's as if you can know too much, if that makes sense. You can know so much that you're, that you're hamstrung almost in terms of writing the story because you don't want to violate what actually happened in terms of the history. Well, of course, the, the murders in this book are entirely fictional, you know, and I'm careful to say that in the acknowledgments and so on. And so I do a certain amount of research, particular, and not just in, in terms of words, the written record, but then also photographic, the photographic record, the imagistic record of that place and time. Enough, I think, to be inspired by that and to start the writing process and then along the way, what I tend to do if I get stuck or if I reach a, you know, the end of a section in the book, I'll go back again. And sometimes what will happen is that uh, when I go back, something will click because now I know what the questions are, if that makes sense. Whereas I might not have known before to that level of specificity. One of the things that happened is that my wife, Lynn, and I visited Ellis Island and took the hard hat tour after I had basically committed to writing the book in my mind and and taken a lot of notes. I knew who I thought the murderers were, but I didn't know how they committed the murders. You know, this mysterious way in which they are actually killing these immigrants that they don't approve of. And during that tour, 
I saw something that clicked and all of a sudden I knew, I knew how they were doing it, so to speak. And I turned to Lynn and I said, that's it. That's how they're doing it. And she said, how they're doing what? And, you know, and I had to explain <laughs> myself. Um, but I didn't know that until actually visiting the spot. So one form of research, which I, you know, you don't initially think about necessarily is the actual going there in a sense, you, you know, you visit the battlefield, you visit the tenement, you visit the town where this story is set. And in this case, of course, visiting Ellis Island, which is a, a haunting, haunting place. Um, it, to me, it, it, it lived up to what I hoped it would be as a setting for a, for a mystery. And what about like the, um, like the period of language? Uh, I don't know how much language has changed from the 20s, like the slang or is, how do you research that? Is it just like by reading the books about it or? A lot of reading of the period literature, hmm. oh, right? Yeah. I mean, Dashiell Hammett was writing in the 30s. Um, Raymond Chandler was writing in the 40s and 50s. I mean, if you go back and you read, yeah, and of course you can read letters, you can read, you know, some formal documents, but if you read the fiction of the period, one of the things you get is a certain flavor of the diction. Um, one of the things that I do in this book, and it, it's fairly typical, I've done it before, is at, in between sections, I'll give short excerpts from the literature of the period, the actual sociology of the period about eugenics. And so you get this language around racial stereotyping and racial assumptions that comes straight out of the 1920s. Uh, and in fact, all, everything I quote was published before the book is set before 1920. And so there's a sense in which these are the things the characters in my book would have, if not actually reading it themselves, they would have been affected and influenced by it. And so I think you're exactly right. I think the language is, is extraordinarily important. Um, and for me, there again, there's this double-barreled quality to this book. It's extraordinarily important, both in terms of the mystery quality, you know, that Steve, the Stephen Robbins of this novel is, is the federal op, like mm -hmm. the continental op who's come there to solve this mystery. And he's, he's got an edge. He's, you know, he's got a past, uh, he's a scarred human being. And so, so the language with which he tells the story, I, I wanted to be consistent to that period and to that genre. And then the language, the larger language around, racial stereotyping around xenophobia around immigration i wanted that language to be consistent as well so there was there was there was a kind of double barreled research if you will and i was always trying to hear stephen's voice in my mind in a way that honored both strands if you will and do you um, do you prepare an outline then before you sit down to write or once you do all the research you just start writing the story out yeah tip typically the second and there are times normally i will write um yeah 30 40 50 pages and at that point begin to get a feel for you know what in the in the trade we call the arc mm -hmm. of the narrative right and it's at that point a lot of times i'll start um outlining if you will now by outlining though i don't mean i really mean note-taking almost a kind of what happens next, things I don't want to forget to include, 
And then what may happen further on, and I'll, I'll keep a page or two or three of notes as a Word document in my computer. And that means I can go back and add, subtract, and, and in particular, add to it. So the, I think the outline itself is organic. I think it grows out of the story as it grows the story, um, if that makes sense. And, and in that way, I think the characters themselves become extremely important in how the narrative unfolds. And do you? what's your typical writing day like then? Do you set like a word count goals when you're writing a project or it just kind of depends? Well, throughout my writing career, I've, I've always had a day job, quote unquote, mm -hmm. which means that, you know, particularly before COVID and now beginning again after COVID, I, you know, the middle part of my day, the nine o'clock to four or five o'clock was consumed with um, either family or with work. And, and so I write very early in the morning. I tend to write between 5.30 and 7 these days. And that's been consistent for a while. And it was consistent while I was doing this. And so it's that part of the day when nobody else really expects anything from you. The world's asleep, so to speak. Um, it's also, I, for me, I think a particularly productive part of the day because uh, if you do have a little dab of insomnia, if you are laying awake in the middle of the night and you can hear those characters talking or you can think about what happens next, once you get some coffee in the system, yeah. and I'm, you know, I'm no decaf here. <laughs> once you get some coffee in the system that next morning, you can begin to translate those insights that, that came out of your subconscious mind during the night onto the page. Um, sometimes almost literally, sometimes almost in terms of writing the dialogue uh, that you heard your character speaking mm -hmm. at 2 a.m. Um, so, yeah, my writing day is 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 very early and it's not that long. I, I've, I've if I write for two hours during a given day, that's that's extensive for me. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, you have to work it, put it into your schedule, right? No matter what you're doing. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so like how many books, uh, how many fiction books do, uh, have you written nonfiction as well? Or do you uh, focus on fiction mostly? I've been writing nonfiction about education, particularly, mm -hmm. and, and to a certain extent also about literature from time to time. Really, for the past 30 years, 35 years. Um, so fiction was a kind of second career, second life, maybe in a way. And uh, this, this novel is my fourth, and it will be published um, 10 years, on, not to the day, but close enough after the first one was published. And so I will have written four novels during that period. And there's a fifth one, which is largely finished. You know, the agent and the editor have it and they're, you know, arguing over it a bit. But the, but the idea is that during... For some reason, and I, I honestly, you know, am at a loss to explain why that 10 year period was has been very productive, you know, knock on wood that it continues. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. What's the what's that process like the editing? Like now it's in the hands of other people and you get notes back How, do, you, do you enjoy that. Do you like dread it? <laughs> I actually enjoy it. And, and so far, I have to say it's been relatively painless. You know, you read these horror stories of the author 
and the editor at loggerheads. Oh no, you've ruined my breathless prose kind of thing. <laughs> I've never had, I've never had that experience. I've been very fortunate, I think, in terms of edit, the editors that I've had, especially at Turner, who, who are my, have been my publisher, uh, you know, for the last three books. And I've always more or less agreed with most of what they've had to say, in part because, of course, their primary concern is that the darn things get published and that they're successful. So I I share their values, as it were. Um, And they've also, I think, been very respectful of of what I've tried to do. They've taken time to understand it. They've taken time to appreciate it and and uh, work, I think, to highlight the best attributes of what I've tried to do in each of the books. And, and my books have tended to be different. They're not, I'm not a genre writer in a sense. Um, I, I think my second novel uh, was tagged a Southern Gothic thriller, and it is a murder mystery set in the summer of 1866. But that's, you know, the, the, what I've done in this book is, is new for me. Mm-hmm. I think there, I hope, think, and hope there'll be more of these in the future, but it's, you know, long-winded way of saying the editorial process for me has always been not easy. Sometimes it could be painstaking, but it's it hasn't been. It's never been painful. And the new book that you're working on now, any uh, what's is that also going to be like a, a mystery or what's that? What's that one about? Yeah, the 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 book that's coming out. I, well, I don't know when it's coming out. Maybe in the next eighteen months. I hope. Knock mm. on wood. Is set in 1930 again. Historical. And it's set in Asheville, Western North Carolina, and it's set, it's, it pivots around the day that the banks, there were eight banks in Buncombe County, where Asheville, North Carolina is, who did not open their doors on the same day, November the 20th, 1930. And so many, many, many people and businesses, including the city of Asheville, lost all their money on the same day mm-hmm. and of course there was no federal insurance there was no and so it it's it's a study of the depression the great depression or at least the beginning of the great depression but it's a very focused study you know and set in this little mountain town in the southeast that provides again this kind of dramatic setting for the, for the purpose of the book because it's you know, it's relatively small, it's enclosed, it's contained like Ellis Island. And it, and literally, you know, it has, it has the extra added dramatic impact of the the region going bankrupt on the same day. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. It's not a murder mystery, but it's, it has many of the it's suspenseful qualities, I hope. Mm-hmm of a murder mystery yeah and so and then the region the mountain region that is, is even though the the your current book is set in the ellis island but the the characters from there so that's a big part of the of, of your books um can you tell us a little a little bit about that i've been mean, growing growing up there do you like uh I, the way it's portrayed sometimes in the in the mainstream i mean what are your thoughts about that I'm just kind of curious <laughs> well i think i think you nailed something i think that uh there are a number of, of writers in my heritage, so to speak, the, you know, the Wilma Dykeman, the James Steele, the John Ely, 
writers of a previous generation, not my contemporaries, but my grandparents or parents, so to speak, in an artistic sense, were among the very first to portray mountain people not as stereotypes, which mm -hmm. goes straight to your question, the way I understand it, you know. And of course, mountain people are still to this day portrayed as, you know, barefoot and toothless and, mm -hmm. you know, dipping snuff and the modern mountaineer, rather than, you know, making moonshine and drinking it is cooking meth and using it. And, you know, there are all kinds of stereotypes around violence, particularly, you know, gun violence and drugs and alcohol. And certainly some of that's there. I mean, it's undeniable that there, those strands are there in Appalachian culture, but the the truth, as I see it, is that Appalachian culture is much, much larger than more complex than that. We have, a, you know, the storytelling tradition, the music tradition, the, the, the tradition around that values education, the, um, the, the stubborn independence, but not stubborn independence merely to break the law, but the stubborn independence to, to live free in a sense and to... Um, make one's own way in the world. All of these things are wrapped up in, in what I, I would think of as Appalachian culture. And, and so I hope that I am one in that tradition that writes about Southern Appalachia in a way that explains it and explains its complexity. And I would even say its sophistication in many ways to the rest of the world, you know, the rest of America. And, and to the rest of the world. I mean, one of the things I'm always careful about is in, in creating Appalachian characters is not to confirm the worst stereotypes um, of someone from New York or someone yeah. from that mainstream media, you know, who would look at a, who would look at the region and say these people are ignorant and savage, you know, and and of course, I don't believe that's the case. I think ignorance exists everywhere. And I think nobility exists everywhere. And so there's a sense in which I'm trying to always trying to capture that. Yeah, I think the thing is more poverty. And that's every every state deals with it. And like you were mentioning too now, the opiates crisis that's uh, hits all the states. And so, yeah, it's kind of funny where we're not as different as everyone thinks about, <laughs> thinks we are. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, so that's uh, that's fascinating. Um, so, uh, so what are you? Uh, so, you're working on this. Uh, are, are you planning on writing a new book, or what's uh, what are you working on next? So now that the, Stephen Robbins, the narrator of My Mistress Eyes, was the narrator of my very first novel, so this is a second view of his life. And now that I've in my mind, begun to establish him as this, as a, as a, not an out and out detective, although by the end of My Mistress Eyes of Raven Black, one could say of Steve, and he even says at one point, maybe I'm a natural, you know, he has, he has a little bit of profanity inserted in that, but, but basically he's saying to the man from the Bureau of Investigation, you know, maybe I'm just good at this naturally. And I think he is, by the way, I think he has that kind of mind. I think he has that kind of personality, that kind of stubbornness that good detectives have. So now that he's arrived at this juncture in his life, I think um, I'm working now on a, on a new novel narrated by Stephen Robbins. Um, 
which follows that pattern, which, you know, and I, I don't know that it's a series. I honestly don't. I do think there's at least one more book, one more story to be told in this vein. Uh, and maybe there are more. I, I honestly don't know. But so I'm, I'm working to try to understand what that's like to bring that personality forward again into a new book. And that's something I've never done before. You know, granted, my mistress eyes is the second look at Stephen's life, but this is this is now suggesting that we're going to live with Stephen for a while and see what becomes of him and see how he evolves, for better or worse. And and so we'll see. I you know I think it, it feels as if there's another another story in this saga, and we'll see where it goes from there. That's the fun part, right? When you start getting into the uh, starting a new project, and it's all new and exciting. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, Terry, before I let you go, I always like to ask my guests, and you have such a great background uh, uh, with, with your uh, from your day job and writing these novels. I have a lot of listeners who are aspiring writers. Uh, so, uh, what advice would you have for someone who's trying to trying to write that first book? Well, I think. I'd, I'd say a couple of things. One is find something, a setting and a character or two about which you are passionate and about which you have questions. I think that for me, the writing process is about is a way of living a question, you know, and in this case, it was a, it was this why are human beings so susceptible to 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 the fear and the hatred of others, those who aren't us. And that question is what keeps me up at night and therefore what drives the book. So I think that that's one thing I would say. Don't necessarily write, write what you know, although in terms of the, the sensual details of the book, it should be what you know or can imagine. But write about something that, that you're truly mystified about, something that you care deeply about and, and want to explore because for me, writing is a form of exploration. And then the second thing I would say, and I don't, I don't hear this enough and, and it's been certainly true for me. So I, I think it might be worth inserting at this point is think about the setting. And by setting, I mean, both geographically a place, but also a time where does a story have its best manifestation on the map but then also in history um and so for me ellis island seemed to be the natural place in which to tell a story about immigration and xenophobia and it felt as if if i when i began to look back at the long history of ellis island the 1920s were in particular a time when we were asking a lot of questions. You know, who is an American? Who gets to become an American? How do we know the difference? And how, what, do we, what do we say to those people whom we don't believe to be worthy of being, quote, an American, unquote? How, and of course, the, the minute you take the lid off all those questions, they become very contemporary questions as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I think my advice to people who want to write that great, great American novel is is give thought not just to the theme and the characters, but but where is this story? 
and by where I mean in time and uh, and in and in geography and place. And so what's the place where the uh, listeners can find you? Uh, what's your website? It's terryrobertsauthor.com. Uh, Terry Roberts Author Facebook page where we try to, you know, not wear you out with minutia, but keep you current on what's going on with the books. Mm. Uh, you can find me at either one of those places. You can email me uh, at terryrobertsauthor.com. The email address is on the website. And um, I'm very excited to be with you today, Alan, but also to think about this book and think about what's next. Yeah. Yeah. Congratulations. Come, uh, my mistress eyes are even black comes out July 27th. So it must be exciting. And so uh, we're recording this on the uh, 20th. So it's coming. It's right around the corner. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right, Terry. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Really enjoyed talking to you about your work and your books. Thank you so much, Alan. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Meet the Thriller Author. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with one of your favorite writers of mysteries and thrillers. Or if this episode's guest is new to you, I hope you give their books a chance. Helping listeners discover new authors and books is one of the coolest outcomes of doing this podcast. As always, you can head over to thrillerauthors.com to sign up to my Thrilling Reads email list. That way you won't miss out on any great deals in thriller and mystery books. You can also check out all the links and resources in the show notes for this episode over at thrillerauthors.com. And also please do subscribe to this podcast if you haven't done so already and leave a rating and review wherever it is that you're listening to this show. If you have done that already, I thank you. I really do appreciate your support. For my other links to my author website, social media haunts, and more uh, check out thrillingweeds.com forward slash links all my links will be uh, on that uh, page so that's it for this episode uh, see you next time and stay safe out there